This is the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, a collection of sermons from Dr. Lewis's time as a teaching pastor at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We hope you grow in your faith and love Jesus more as you learn through these teachings. Here is this week's message. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, if you would. Probably heard the description of type A and type B personalities. The type A personality being one who's a high achiever, who has considerably lofty standards and overdrive kind of personality, whose life can easily become stress-filled and driven, and if you're not careful, unhealthy. And then there are those type B personalities, such as myself, who are more relaxed, (laughs) sedate, easygoing, that at times lacks focus, sometimes a healthy sense of direction. Well, I want you to know as you go through the pages of the New Testament, you'll find what I call type A and type B churches. And they're not so much like type A and type B personalities, but there are two kind of distinct descriptions of churches found in the pages of the New Testament. The type A church is one I would call the mission-minded church. And it's a church that has a crusade type of focus to it. It's intent on winning people to Jesus Christ. It's intent on conquering new territory, on shaking their community with good works, on challenging others, on taking corporate action together. Then on the other hand, as you turn through the pages of the New Testament, you come across churches that I would call more me-minded congregations. They have more of a caretaker type of personality, ones who emphasize acceptance and liberties, churches that are more intent on being non-judgmental. They emphasize feelings and self-actualization. The type A church is a church that's motivated by Jesus' words, follow me. They hear those words clearly. In fact, for many of the people making up those congregations, that's how they came into the faith not just with a call to receive me, but with a call to follow me. They heard mission in that statement. And so they followed Jesus Christ. And he said, if you follow me, I'll make you a fisher of other people. He said, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. The mission-minded church hears that. On the other hand, the type B church is motivated more by the words for me. Jesus Christ is for me. He's taken my sins away for me. He's done things for me. It's oftentimes what Christ does for me. The type A church is often directional. It's very goal-oriented. The type B church, on the other hand, is often non-directional. And it's person-oriented. You go through the pages of the New Testament, you see a number of those type A churches. For instance, when I turn to the book of 1 Thessalonians, the Thessalonican church was a type A church whose watchwords were excel still more. You see it right there in the Scripture. Listen to Paul's description of this type A church. He says, The Word of God sounded forth from you not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith has gone forth so much so that we, we apostles, have no need to say anything. On the other hand, 
An example of the type B church would be the one that we're looking at here in 1 Corinthians. The church at Corinth, whose watchword was freedom. A church of whom Paul said, and I could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to babes in Christ. Two different churches with two different focuses, with two different impacts. Now, I want you to know, whereas personalities A or B are somewhat fixed, more or less, I think we all know that, church personalities are not fixed, nor are Christian lifestyles fixed. They're fluid. They come from the choices we make. We choose the type of church that we want to become. And we have that choice even here today. And I would hope that we would lean more to type A than to type B. We choose also the type of Christianity we personally want to pursue for ourselves. And here's what I want you to hear. You might just jot this down on the first point. Nothing, spiritually speaking, happens by accident. There's nothing, spiritually speaking, in your life that happens by accident. There are reasons. There are always reasons behind why one church is hot and another's not. There are reasons for that. There are reasons why one church reaches the city while another church withers in the neighborhood. There are reasons why one Christian life makes such an incredible personal difference in the lives of others while another Christian life makes only a mess. Nothing, spiritually speaking, I want you to know, happens by accident. You choose the direction of your spiritual life, just like churches choose the impacts that they make. Now, in 1 Corinthians 9, starting in verse 24 this morning, I want you to see what some of those reasons are. They're very simple reasons. I really love this text for this reason. This text is one of the most simplistic texts in Scripture. It uses an athletic analogy that we'll see, but it's so simple and it's so basic. At points, I felt like, well, I don't even need to say that. But then I thought, no, sometimes the simplest things are the most important things. And so bear with me as I give some obvious things as I move through this text. But really, in response to our own personal lives, they are extremely profound. Verse 24, Paul says, Do you not know that all who run in a race, all run, they're all running, yet only one receives the prize. And then here's the exhortation. Run in such a way that you might win. Now when Paul speaks of running and racing and those kind of analogies, he's referring to something that was very clear in the Corinthian mind. Athletic images were very powerful because Corinth was a center of athletic competition. Every three years, athletes from all over the ancient world would gather in Corinth for the famous Isthmian Games, their fame only superseded by the ancient Olympic Games. For 10 months, athletes would come and would dwell in the city of Corinth and in the hillsides around the city of Corinth, and they would go through a 10-month rigorous training experience, denying themselves every possible liberty 
in order to ready themselves for a number of events, athletic events, the most pre prestigious of which was the sprint. Isn't it interesting? It was the sprint back then, and it's the sprint even today in our Olympic Games. We want to know who is the fastest person alive. And it was true in that day as well. Now, Paul uses, starting in verse 24, this race analogy, this running this race, to tell us three things about life. There's just some general rules about life that we need to keep before us. And when we ignore these rules, we pay the price for ignoring them. So here's what he says. Three things to keep in mind. The first, as I said, may seem obvious, but it's nonetheless important. It's this. In this life, there are winners and there are losers. <laughs> In this life, there are winners and there are losers. All who run the race, all run. We're all trying to win, aren't we? But only one receives the prize, or some receive the prize in a more corporate sense. No one is trying to lose, but the fact remains, some of you, some of us, some of our world will lose. <clears throat> now, I know we try to shield our kids from that when they're especially young. You know, having four children, we've started them in different kinds of activities and athletic events. And when they're real young, like in micro soccer, you know, we take them to micro soccer and all the kids get around. They don't know what they're doing. They're running every which way. And they have a little camp, micro soccer camp. And when they're finished, you know, all the kids are excited. All the parents are excited. And they give every kid there a ribbon participant. But the kid thinks, man, I'm the best because I have a blue ribbon that says participant on it. And they go home happy as they can be. Don't you wish it could just stay that way? Don't you wish you could go through all of life and everybody walks away with the same thing, participant in life, a winner? But you know, there's a harsh reality that sets in after micro soccer when it gets to be League soccer, AAU soccer. When you go to camp and everybody's competing and at the end of that camp, they have one that steps forward and they place a gold medal around his or her neck and it says, the best. And your kid's standing there as part of the rest. They take home the participant t-shirt and that one takes home a gold medal. And suddenly the harsh reality that the days of the level playing field, they're over. In the book that I wrote, Real Family Values, I have a diagram in that book that talks about all lifestyles not being equal. Sometimes you might just take a look at the diagram, but I don't devote a page there to talk about lifestyles that win and lifestyles that lose. For example, I show that the non-Christian couple the non-Christian family who has very clear values, they know what they believe. They're consistent in teaching what they believe. They're emotionally stable. There's a sense of love and affection in the home. That couple will supersede and win out over the Christian church-going couple every time if that Christian church-going couple has values that are not clear or who have values that are contradictory, or who suffer in secret constant emotional and social turmoil and manipulation. Now, we don't like to hear that because we like to think of Christian and successful family as being one and the same thing. 
But I want you to know, there's a harsh reality when it comes to winning and losing in life. And Christian and good family do not automatically go together. There are lifestyles that win for families, and there are lifestyles that lose. When it comes to living the Christian life, there are some who are going to make a tremendous contribution to the kingdom of God. And there are going to be some who by their own choices, with all that they know and all that they receive, will choose instead to waste their contribution. When we look through the book of Corinthians, there's something that jumps off the page at me. It seems like in every message. Because let me tell you, if I lived in the ancient world, I would hope that I would not choose to be a member of this church. I would not want to be a Corinthian Christian. They were so caught up in themselves. Have you seen that in every page? Paul is constantly trying to pull them out of themselves to a bigger contribution in the Christian life, and yet they refuse to do so. They want to talk about their rights. They want to talk about their liberties. They want to talk about whether they can eat meat sacrificed idols. They want to talk about tolerance and not judging one another. They want to be non-judgmental. They want to take each other to court. They want to say, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, and so on. They want to have cliques. But you know what they don't want to have? A mission. A mission to change the world. To put before them those kind of things, those lesser things, to go forward and make a difference to the God who's calling them to say, follow me. They don't want to hear that. they got other things that they're involved in. And yet, when I compare Paul to them, back and forth, I wonder, who makes the greater contribution to the real kingdom of God? The Corinthians who are arguing theology and forming cliques and thinking of themselves as knowing every little nook and cranny of the Bible, or Paul who says, you know, knowledge puffs up. But love... It edifies. Who makes the greater contribution to the kingdom of God? The Corinthians who are arguing over their right to eat meat, sacrificed idols, because it's their right? Or the apostle who says, if my food causes my brother to stumble, then I won't ever eat meat again. Who makes the greater contribution? You see, everyone here is running a race. We're all running it. It's the race of life. We're all looking for life. We want to get our hands around life. But we need to understand this simple exhortation. You get to choose how you're going to run. So run in such a way that you might win. There are winners and there are losers. Second rule of life is this. Self-control is behind every success. Look at verse 25. He says, And everyone who competes in the games, these Isthmian games, exercises self-control in all things. Self-control, listen, you know it. Isn't this so clear and obvious that self-control is behind every success? The word self-control here in verse 25 literally means the strength to abstain. Isn't that an interesting phrase? The strength to abstain. Great accomplishments in life, great contributions to the kingdom of heaven are impossible without the strength to abstain from certain things, even good things, 
To go forward, you have to be focused. And to be focused, you have to say no to some things, even good things, if you're going to get there. It's a rule of life. You cannot do great things without the power to say no. No to distractions. No to common pleasures that others are going to pursue anyway. No to comfort. No to fear, thinking you can't do it, but God says you can. No to sin in your life. You have to have the power to abstain. Self-control is behind every success, even kingdom success. You know, for years, my daughter participated with the Little Rock Dolphins. Elizabeth did. The AAU Swim Club. And let me tell you, I have never seen a sport that requires more of its athletes than does swimming. When we first got in the pool, when she was nine years old and swam for the Dolphins, it seemed like a good time, but let me tell you, it becomes focused work and self-denial. When she became the state champion in the backstroke, then became the time zone, central time zone champion in the backstroke, then was promoted to the U.S. regional team in the backstroke, at every stage as she moved up that ladder, the discipline became harder. I remember at 13 years old, every morning the alarm at 440 going off, and I could hear her getting up in the room, getting dressed, putting on her swimsuit, and going and working out between 5 and 7. Coming back, going to school, then racing over to the swim club from 4 to 6. Every day. Every day. Just to swim. A backstroke. But you know, that was nothing compared to a friend who swam next to her, a guy named John Hargis. Now John swam for the Dolphins, but he was from Clinton, Arkansas. So every morning, his mom would get him up around 3. They'd be in the car at 3.30. They would drive to Little Rock. He would swim between 5 and 7 in the morning, drive back to Clinton, go to school, get in the car, drive back to Little Rock, and swim between 4 and 6, go back to Clinton, do his homework on the way home, in order to swim for this AAU club. But let me tell you, he had a goal in his life. And he was focused, and he had to abstain from a lot of things in order to pursue that goal. He did it every day for years. And I remember how much fun it was this summer when Elizabeth and I sat at the television set and cheered for John Hargis at the Atlanta Olympics, where he won the gold medal swimming for the relay team. Was it worth it? You asked John Hargis. But here's the point. Nothing, nothing in your life that's worth living for will ever be achieved without the power of saying no in order to go for the gold. Nothing. Because self-control is behind every success. Thirdly, a final rule is just this one. The rewards of some successes last and the rewards for other successes don't. Look at verse 25 again. It says, they, that is the uh, Isthmian competitors, they do all of this self-denial and exercise to receive a perishable wreath. But we Christians do ours to receive an imperishable. The reward for winning in the Isthmian games was at the end of that, because they were amateurs, you would receive a small crown that crown was made out of pine wood. It was put on your head. That was yours to enjoy for being the world's fastest man or the best boxer in the ancient world. 
Paul calls it a perishable wreath, not just because it's a pine, made of pine wood, but as any athlete knows, the glory of a medal begins to fade the moment you wear it. Hey, I played on a football team that played for the national championship. I've played on teams that have won championships. I've won medals. I've won trophies. And I know a lot of athletes who would wish, they wish they could rub their trophy like rubbing the bottle of a genie and would hope the glory <laughs> would return. But it doesn't. The glory of all that denial and all that pursuit and all those championships, as any athlete knows, is fleeting. And the rewards of so many other successes that we absolutely give our lives to, when we finally get them, we find they're not worth having because the glory fades. I read about Abdul Rama III, the ruler of Spain in 912. He ruled for 50 years. He had every pleasure at his disposal. He was a powerful man. He had all the things he wanted, all the women he wanted, all the power he wanted, and he pursued it to the fullest. And at the end of his life, he said, I have looked back on my life and I have diligently numbered the days of my life that were happy. And they total 14. 14. 14 happy days for a man who thought he could have it all, but found out that some rewards last and some don't. You know, it's a wise man or woman who disciplines themselves to win at things that bring rewards that don't fade. Ain't that a simple statement? It's a wise person who figures out what life is really all about, then they discipline themselves. They have the strength to abstain from certain things, but they discipline themselves to pursue and win at certain things that they know the rewards that come from winning won't fade. Like the reward that comes from a winning marriage. That's a powerful reward. Or the reward that comes from winning at parenting and one day seeing your son or daughter walk in the truth. You know, I met my daughter. She went back to college and one of the most exciting discussions I've ever had was sitting in a restaurant late at night before school started talking to her about her excitement of winning some of her sorority sisters to Christ. She had finally embraced that that was really important. And she was talking about wanting to go deeper in her spiritual life. And it was just almost surreal, surrealistic. I was sitting there thinking, this is now an adult. This is a person possessing their own faith. This is my daughter. What greater reward could match that? What about the reward at winning at friendships? What about the reward of a clean conscience? What about winning at faith and serving faithfully the kingdom of God? You know, Paul says that those who persevere faithfully and win at the things of the Spirit, that they, and I'm quoting him now, receive an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Is that not an incredible phrase? An eternal weight of glory. Compare that to a pine wood crown. 
It's incredible. I've often wondered about the changes that I would make in terms of pursuits, in terms of priority, in terms of my time, in terms of my life, if just for one minute, 60 seconds, I could, I could glimpse the glory of eternity. If I could really see what it was about, how it was ordered, how it was arranged, who was honored and who was not, how it was measured out, and most importantly, who had it and who didn't. You know, if I could see that, I bet a number of things would enter my life as a whole new motivation, but God has left that to us by faith. He says it's there. Go for the gold. In this life, some rewards last. Some don't. Now, if these are the rules of life, and by the way, they are the rules of all of life, secular and sacred. And if I want to be a type A Christian, now I'm speaking specifically for the kingdom of God. One who's not just using the kingdom for my own benefit, but one who's winning, winning, winning for the kingdom. If I'm going to be that kind of person, then how should I choose? How should I choose? And again, it's very simple, and Paul gives it in the next two verses. He offers three what I call winning responses for the person who wants to be a kingdom competitor. See, in the kingdom, in the kingdom of God, in the church, as Christians, we're all competing. Now, not necessarily against one another, but we're all competing to win. And if I want to win, how then should I choose? Because, see, we can't choose our personality, but we can choose to win. Paul says, well, let me give you three winning responses for a kingdom competitor. The first is this. I must have, I must have a clear Christ-centered aim or purpose. Christ-centered, by the way, is the most important words in that phrase. Because now I want you to listen to this. Until you come to a place in your personal heart where your supreme ambition is to please God, just to please, if you read it, if he said it, you want to pursue it. It's to please God. Then you are not fit to be a kingdom competitor. If you're still deliberating, you're not fit. You're not ready. You're not trained and you won't succeed. There has to be a first decision. That is, I've got to have a clear aim to please God. I might get more specific than that in actual application, but it's got to start with that. Look at what Paul says in verse 26. He says, therefore, in light of these rules of life, therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, just flailing my arms. He said, that's not the way I do it. You know what the worst words you can be called in the kingdom are? Don't know. Don't know. It's the worst thing you can say about a Christian. What does God want you to be? Don't know. What convictions does God want you to have? Don't know. What have you found in the Scripture that's a compelling vision for your life? Don't know. Don't know. You see, you're useless to the kingdom of God if you don't know. You're useless. You're disqualified. You're not fit. That's why in verse 26, Paul says, I don't run without a finish line in sight. I know where I'm going. I don't box the air. I have a target. I have something I want to hit. 
I know exactly what Christ wants me to do. And in Paul's case, it was to preach the gospel in every place. That was his compelling vision in life. You know, social scientists tell us that the most unhappy people in life are people who have no goals. That's just from a social standpoint. They have no sense of direction. They have no compelling purpose to their lives. Everything is up in the air. Life is whatever it is. I just meet it and enjoy it or don't enjoy it, and I move on. In Gail Sheehy's bestseller, Pathfinders, which was on the bestseller list for many, many weeks, she lists in her book the 10 marks of well-being, the 10 critical marks of well-being for people. And at the number one position on the top of her chart was that she said that people who are happy, who are well, who are moving forward, are those who have a clear life calling that they're attaching their life to. People of well-being, she says, have meaning and they have clear direction. So why is spiritual aim so important? Because until you know what spiritual competition God is calling you into, everyone's being called into some competition, until you know it and it's clearly in focus, then spiritually speaking, you're wandering around. And at best, you're a type B Christian where the real goal is just personal self-gratification. Just take care of me. Caretaker Christianity. Last couple of years, I've done exactly what Bill Wellens told us in his New Year's message. He said, you need to get away and think about your life. And I did that. I did that last year and I did that this year. And I have been amazed at the clarity of just being alone, listening and thinking and deliberating before God brings to your life. The energy it gives. Because you come back feeling not driven anymore by circumstances, although there still always are going to be those seductions. But when you've met with God, when you've thought about your life, you come back feeling God has called you to do something. And in my case, I came back feeling called to do something. And something very specific. So that I might beat the air, not without aim, but I might hit the target. That I might run the race with a clear finish line. Do you have that kind of clarity? That's what Paul's talking about here. Because to be a kingdom competitor, you must have a clear Christ-centered aim for why you're on earth. You know, one of the hardest questions to answer is, why are you here? What hard choices must I make to get there? Look at what Paul says in verse 27. He says, he says I have aim. And then he says, so I buffet my body and I make it my slave. Paul knew that God had called him to preach the gospel to the world. And he was do, willing to do whatever it took in order to fulfill that calling. Even if the sacrifices meant giving up things that were rightfully his and abstaining for, from liberties that were rightly his as well. You want to see how he says it? Just turn back a page and look at 1 Corinthians, same chapter, chapter 9, but look at verse 19. Notice how he says it, and you can hear his aim and his discipline in the same statement. He says this, For though I am free for all men, that's his liberty, I have made myself a slave to all. Why'd you do that, Paul? That I might win the more. There's my purpose. 
To the Jew, I became like a Jew that I might win the Jews. Look at verse 21. To those without the law, I became as without the law, that not being without the law of God, but under the law of God. But I did that, that I might win those who are without the law. Verse 22. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all men. Why? For my purpose, that I may by all means save some. That's why I did that. That's why I offered myself in that way. It didn't bother me to give up meat. It doesn't give me pleasure to give up my possessions if somebody wants to take me to a court, but Paul says, I'll give it up because there's no reason to go to court. It's love that edifies. I'm not going to be in cliques. I'm going to just simply serve the God who is and live that way. Paul says, I do that because I have a finish line in view. And I want to get there no matter how hard it is. Then a final winning response is this. I must follow through. I must follow through and I must do what I say to be fully rewarded. See, I can have my goal and I can know what to do and make hard choices, but then I've still got to follow through and actually do it if I'm going to be fully rewarded. Talk is cheap, isn't it? Talk is cheap. But unless I do what I say, Paul says here in verse 27, he says, if I don't follow through, then after I preach to others, I would find myself disqualified. Now, by that use of that term, Paul is not saying, I've lost my salvation. There are some who point to that verse and say, see, you can lose your salvation. He's not saying that at all. Paul is clearly referring to what he's already said back in 1 Corinthians 3, especially verse 15, where he said, if any man's spiritual work is burned up, he shall suffer loss. But then he adds, but he himself will be saved. The loss, Paul, the disqualification Paul is talking about here is not the loss of salvation, but it's a loss of purpose. And it's the loss of reward. It's the loss of the race. It just simply means my life was wasted. The glory that could have awaited at the end will now be denied because I did not take seriously that which I knew to be true. To win for the kingdom, to be a Christian of contribution rather than convenience always follows the same pattern. It's right here. A, you must know what to do. B, you must discipline yourself to do it. And C, you must stay with it until it's done. It never changes. Simple laws for simple people like me, but with incredible experiences and rewards attached to those who just simply will believe it. Just believe it. You know, I have never regretted the simplistic decision I made at 17 when after deciding to follow Jesus Christ, I had some wise people who were mission-minded who looked me in the eye and said, you know, to follow Jesus Christ, you've got to give it all up. And that struck a chord, I think a holy chord in my soul. And I was willing to do that. Now, I've gotten many, many things back, but it started with that basic decision. You've got to give it all up. You've got to become a type A to win. 
Now you may be sitting here today, and I bet some of you are, who are sitting, oh, you know, this just confuses me. Because I still don't know what God wants me to do. Well, I have an application here at the end. Maybe you're in that category this morning, and you don't know where to start. Well, I want to help you start at least at one place. Every Christian, every Christian, if I read the Bible correctly, needs to be willing and able and disciplined to share their faith with another human being. Jesus said, I'm going to give you my spirit and he shall come upon you and you shall be my witnesses. Jesus said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Paul said, be ready in season and out of season to give a defense of the faith. Reach out to others. And you may say, I don't know how to do that. Well, that's not the starting place in the outline. The starting place is, would you make that part of your aim? If you say yes to that, then there's a second part. Then you need to learn how to do that. And that's what I'm going to help you do on February the 2nd. If you have never learned how to share your faith in a reasonable manner, in an articulate manner, in a way that's congruent with your personality, that could offer compassion to the world, I have an opportunity for you. And that's to be a part of the one-to-one -one class. To make you a winner for the kingdom. To give you the ability to do it and then to find opportunity to do that. And so I want to offer that to you, that before this day is out, Dan talked about the equipping center. If you're here and you've never done that and taken that class, I'd plead with you. As one who feels that's part of my mission, I'd plead with you to accept that invitation and challenge. You know, there was one doctor in our church that did that in the last class. And I remember as we went around and shared at the beginning of the class, he said, you know, I've been a Christian for so many years, I don't remember how many, but he said, you know, I've never led anybody to Christ. Never led anybody to Christ. And you know, when I hear that, it just, it hurts a little. Because what a privilege. What a privilege. But boy, what an opportunity for him because he had taken the step to step into that class. He said, I'm here. So we began to move through the lessons. And I remember him coming in before we were finished in the class, and he said, you know, he said, I got to share something tonight. He said, I was making rounds for another physician. And I walked into a hospital room and there was an old lady there. And she was obviously very, very ill. And I went just to check her signs and check up on her. And in the dark of that room that night, she looked up at me and she said, doctor, I'm scared. And he said, you are? Yeah, I'm scared. How do I know where I'll go when I die? You know, that's an incredible question from a sacred human being lying in their last days. And his mind started scrambling. He put together the things he had heard. He sat at her bedside for an hour and led her to Jesus Christ. And the next day she died. Now let me tell you, what an incredible reward. But here's what I want you to hear me. Hear me. Nothing, nothing, spiritually speaking, happens by accident. Nothing. You know what you call what happened that night in that hospital room? 
You call it winning. Winning for the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father, this morning as we finish the message before we sing, I know some of us are tired. I know some of us are weary. Some of us are worn out, but for some of us, it's not because of purpose. But it's because we've been beating the air without aim. Somewhere at some time, we have to decide who we're living life for and how meaningful is that. And I pray for us as a church, my prayer, Lord, that you would spare us the slide into type B Christianity. Where our mind noodles on insignificant things. Where our lives are giving, being given to every distraction and entertainment because that's all we've thought life to be. Just going from the next experience and measuring it whether it felt good or not and then going to the next one. You have called us to be people of purpose, people of mission, and Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ. Help us receive that. Help us to receive that. And then help us take the time to craft a lifestyle, a race, that in the end, we would truly win. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message. It really helps us when you rate and review this podcast. If you found today's teaching helpful, take time to do that today. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. Visit soundofarose.com for any of your podcasting needs.